0: Chapter forty six of the Grell Mystery This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox. org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The Grell Mystery by Frank Fraust Chapter forty six It was to Helden Foyle's own house and not to Scotland Yard that Green telephoned eventually. Clad in a bright blue dressing gown, the superintendent listened, with a few non committal interjections, until his lieutenant had finished. "'On his own land, eh?' he said at last. "'What do you make of it, Green? "'Is it genuine, or has he done it just to throw us off "'and doubled back on his trail? "'It looks as if he intended us to find that motor-car.' Green disagreed. "'It's a deserted blind road made for woodcutters years ago. "'It was only a chance that a constabulary sergeant found it. "'He may have left it there for the time being, "'relying on coming back to hide it properly out of sight, "'and this is an ideal place for anyone to keep close. "'It would take a thousand men to search the wood anything like thoroughly.' there's some sort of house on the estate i suppose demanded foyle yes i've not been up to it but i'm told it's a big rambling old place called dalehurst grange approached through sloping meadows and backing onto the woods it would be easy for a man to see anyone in the house coming from the front and slip away into the undergrowth mallie's gone up to have a look at the place we'll need a search warrant to go over the place but i don't think it'll be any good Nor I, agreed Foyle. It'll have to be done some other way. You've asked the county constabulary to make inquiries and to watch the railway stations round about, of course. All right. You run things on your own discretion, and if you or Malley see me, just shut your eyes. Now give me your address and report to the yard as usual. The superintendent lit a cigar after he had replaced the receiver, and thoughtfully toasted his slippered feet before the fire presently he rose turned over the leaves of a time-table and discovering that dalehurst possessed no railway station discarded it in favour of a gazetteer from that he found that the village was four miles from deepnook and the time-table again consulted showed him that he could reach the latter place in a couple of hours from waterloo Before he went to bed that night he packed the kit-bag that had accompanied him in most of his wanderings all over the globe. Other things than clothes found a place in its depths, among them a jemmy, some putty, and a glazier's diamond. The superintendent had an idea that they might be more effective than a search warrant. Yet, as he turned the key, he realised that the energy and the efforts of both himself and Green might be wasted. There was a possibility that it was a blind trail, that Grell had contrived the whole thing as a blind, and had slipped out of the net that had been drawn for the brown motor-car." The thought induced Foyle to telephone through to headquarters to order a fresh warning to be wired through to the police at all the ports. He believed in leaving as little as possible to chance. The night staff was still on duty when he reached Scotland Yard the next morning. The detective inspector in charge stared at a corpulent man clad in a Norfolk jacket, knickerbockers of brown tweed, whose heavy boots clanged along the corridor. The hair, moustache and eyebrows of the intruder were a shiny black, and a little trimming with scissors and a judicious use of a comb and brush had altered the appearance of the superintendent's face as completely as the clothes had altered his figure. He was no believer in stage disguises. False beards and wigs were liable to go wrong at critical moments. He nodded reassuringly to the inspector and placed his kit bag on the floor. It's all right, I'm Foyle, right enough. I'm thinking of a change of air for a day or two, was all the explanation he vouchsafed. I want to just run through my letters and catch the 910 train from Waterloo. I'll leave a note over for Mr Mainland, who'll take charge while I'm away.' He went methodically through the heavy morning's correspondence, pencilling a few notes here and there on the letters, and sorting them into baskets ranged on the table as he finished. Precisely at a quarter to nine he touched a bell and gave a few brief instructions. Then carrying his bag he descended the flight of steps at the front entrance and walked briskly along the embankment. As he crossed the footway of Hungerford Bridge, a biting wind swept up the river and he shivered, warmly clad though he was. One of his own men passed without recognising him, and the superintendent smiled to himself. There were five minutes to spare when he sank into the corner seat of a smoking compartment and composed himself with a couple of morning papers for the journey, but he read very little. There was much to occupy his mind, and as the train slipped out of Waterloo Station, he tossed the periodicals aside, crossing his knees, blew a cloud of smoke into the air, and with a little gold pencil made a few notes on a visiting card. London slipped away, and an aeroplane flying low came into his line of vision as they passed Weybridge. The open pasture meadows gave place to more wooded country, and he placed his pencil back in his pocket as they ran into Deep Nook. A solitary porter shuffled forward to take his bag. Foyle handed it over. "'Is there a good hotel in this place?' he asked. "'There's the Anchor, sir,' answered the porter. "'It's a rare good place, and they say as our Lord Nelson stayed there once. They aren't very busy at this time of the year. Only one or two motorists stop in there. "'What's good enough for Nelson is good enough for me. Is it far, or can you carry that bag there?' the porter hastened to reassure the gentleman it was a bare three minutes walk might he ask if the gentleman was staying long foyle wasn't sure it depended on how he liked the country and on the weather by the way he went on with an air of one faintly curious didn't mr grell who was murdered in london have some property this way dalehurst grange or something i suppose you never saw him that i have asserted the porter eager to associate himself however remotely with the tragedy i've seen him time and again he always used this station when he came down from london though that wasn't often worse luck he was a nice sort of gentleman though some of the folks down here pretended that he was not what you'd call in proper society because he was an american but i always found him generous and free-handed and to think of him being done to death my missus says she's afraid to go to bed afore i go off duty now it was a great shock to us that murder He spoke with a solemn shake of the head, as though he lived in daily dread of assassination himself. "'You see the last train through, I suppose?' asked Foyle, irrelevantly. "'Yes, sir, the ten-nine-up. As I was saying, what with these ear murders and things—have they shut the Grange up, or is there still someone living there?' "'Well, they got rid of most of the servants. I believe there's still a housekeeper there, and a maid, as well as a gardener. I remember when Mr. Grell first took over the place. Bill Ellis, he's the blacksmith, says to me—' He entered into lengthy reminiscence, to which Foyle only paid casual heed. He had learned what he wanted to know. Grell, if he had left the neighbourhood the preceding night, had not done so from Deepnook, where he would have infallibly been recognised. The porter was still talking when they passed under the branching arms of the giant chestnut that shaded the courtyard of one of the prettiest of the old coaching inns of England. Foyle slipped a shilling into his guide's hand and registered himself as Alfred Frampton, London local gossip is often of service to the man who knows how to lead it into the right channels the superintendent decided that an hour or two might be profitably wasted in the lounge where half a dozen men were sitting at a small table before a huge open fireplace He ordered a drink and sat a little apart, relying on their provincial curiosity to presently drag him into the conversation. By the time the lunch he had ordered for one o'clock was ready, his habit of handling men had stood him in good stead. Mr. Frampton of London had paid for drinks, told half a dozen good stories, laughed at a score of bad ones, asked many innocent questions, and deftly given the impression that he was a London businessman in search of a few weeks' rest from overstrain moreover he had gained some knowledge of the lay of the country and acquaintances who might be useful one never knew the afternoon saw him tramping through the picturesque countryside with its drooping hills and wooded valleys he moved as one careless of time whose only object was to see the country once he stayed to talk with a stone-breaker by the side of the road, once he led a farmer's restive horse and trap by a traction engine, on both occasions he contrived to drop a good deal of information about himself and his reasons for being in that part of the country. That it was false was little matter. The best way to stop local gossip is to feed it. A mysterious, quiet stranger would be speculated about. The amiable businessman from London with a love of chat was quite unlikely to arouse suspicions.' sooner or later grell if he were in the neighbourhood would learn of the presence of green and Malley. his attention would be concentrated on what they were doing foyle acting independently was looking for an opening to attack from the rear he had a great opinion of grell's capacity for getting out of awkward situations he sauntered through dalehurst stopping at a little general store to buy some tobacco and gather more gossip the village shop invariably focuses village gossip a garrulous old dame talked at large with the affable stranger and when the superintendent emerged he was certain that chief inspector green and those acting with him had succeeded in maintaining an adequate discretion in regard to the events of the preceding night As Foyle passed on, he observed a man hurrying towards him and recognised Malley. Abruptly, the superintendent turned his back, and leaning his arms upon a low stone wall, seemed lost in contemplation of a little churchyard. When the divisional inspector had passed on, Foyle resumed his walk. It cost him some little trouble to find the road in which the motor-car had been left derelict. The sodden earth still retained wheel-tracks, and it needed but a glance to show that the car had been removed but a few hours before he walked on till he came to the place where green had found the strip of brown cloth which was fairly plain to find for the footsteps of green and the other police officers when they followed the trail ceased there as Grells had done here he drew a small pocket compass from his waistcoat pocket and pressing a spring released the needle as it came to rest he thrust aside the hazel bushes and plunged in among the undergrowth now and again he consulted the compass as he walked leisurely forward wet branches brushing his face and whipping at his clothes for the brief portion of the way a keeper's path facilitated his progress but at last he was forced to abandon this and return to the wilder portion of the wood he was making a detour which he hoped would lead him to the back of dalehurst grange at last he could see a clear space ahead of him and in a little sinking on his knees on a bank was peering downhill to an old-fashioned jacobean manor house from whose chimney smoke was lazily wreathing upward. between him and the house a meadow sloped for a hundred yards and the back of the house was bounded by an irregular orchard "'Pity I didn't think to bring a pair of field-glasses,' muttered Foyle as his eyes swept the place. "'I can't tell how those mullioned windows are protected. Well, I may as well make myself comfortable, I suppose.' a little search rewarded him with a great oak tree and in the fork of a branch twenty feet high he found an easy seat from which he could watch the house without any great risk of being seen himself immobile as a statue he remained till long after dusk had fallen and a steady light appeared at one of the windows it was in fact ten o'clock and the light had disappeared when he dropped quietly to earth and with quick footsteps began to cross the meadow to the orchard under the fruit trees the detective moved slower and held his stick before him softly tapping the ground as though he were blind He had not taken half a dozen steps before the stick touched something stretched about a foot from the ground. Stooping, he groped in the darkness. "'A cord,' he muttered. Now I wonder if that is merely a precaution against burglars, or—' And stepping over the obstacle, he went on cautiously feeling his way. Twice more he found cords stretched across the grass, so that an unwary intruder might be tripped up, but his caution enabled him to avoid them. The walls of the house loomed before him. He stepped to the nearest window and tested it. It was fastened tightly, nor could he see inside.' "'Foyle had no taste for the haphazard "'and would have liked to be certain of the run of the house, "'but one window was as good as another in the circumstances. "'He worked deftly with a glazier's diamond for a while "'and at last removing one of the diamond panes of glass "'thrust his hand through and undid the latch. "'The window swung open and the superintendent sat down "'on the grass underneath and swiftly unlaced his boots. "'In another two minutes he was inside the house "'and pulling an electric torch from the capacious pocket "'of his Norfolk jacket, he swept a thin wedge of light about the room.' It was furnished as a sitting-room, but there was no reason for examining it minutely. Foyle pulled open the door and moved into a thickly-carpeted corridor, which made his stockinged feet almost unnecessary. Door after door he opened, and noiselessly examined with the aid of his single beam of light. By the time he had come to a finely carved old oak staircase, he had a rough idea of the plan of the house as far as the ground floor was concerned. The upper floors demanded more caution, for there the servants might be sleeping.' the first door that foyle tried after the landing was locked pressing his ear to the keyhole he could hear the deep regular breathing of someone within twice he tried keys without success at the third attempt the bolt of the lock gave he pushed the door back and there was a crash as a chair which had been wedged behind it was flung to the floor a woman shrieked and foyle drew back into the shadow of the landing cursing his luck then there came the sound of rapid footsteps. The superintendent drew himself together, and his muscles grew taut as a man came running. A light blazed up as the man passed through the doorway. Foyle caught one glimpse of a square-faced man fully dressed and acted rapidly. He dashed forward, and his hand twined itself round the other's wrist. Mr. Robert Grell, I believe he said suavely End of chapter forty six